And yeah, what if I tried something like this? You know, maybe fucking this. A little laid back. Maybe you want something a little heavier. Uh, well, probably not heavy, but you're now listening to. Hello, guys. It's me, Deanne Smith. Look at us. We're doing the podcast again. Hello. You are a regular listener. Greetings and welcome back. If you're new to the podcast, hello. We're very happy to have you here. I'm not going to do much of an intro uh, because it's very jam-packed. We've got a lot of info in here. I will tell you this, though. Last week, I asked you guys to write to me and tell me what's up, and a bunch of you did. So thank you for that. And I want to I do a little more community building around here. So feel free to write me anytime, guys. Tell me what's up. Uh, write me with uh, questions, concerns, just anecdotes about your life. Uh, words of encouragement for me, for all of us, really. Feel free to write me with anything at dn at nomoradio.com. So what I'm going to do at the end of this podcast is read a bunch of listener feedback. Listener feedback. Should we get a theme song for it? <laughs> I'll slow down because you know what's going to happen. If I even mention a theme song, you know Patrick World's on top of it. You know Patrick World's going to make a theme song for listener feedback because that's the kind of guy he is. Patrick World, I know you're out there. I know you would make a theme song for us. But let's just, we'll give it a few weeks, see how it develops. Maybe I'll always impro a theme song. We'll be cool with that. Speaking of impro, oh my gosh, you guys, I'm too excited about this episode. There's so much going on. I talked to Jeff Weiner. Who is this guy? You know what? He's going to tell you who he is. He's going to give you his qualifications. There's a lot of words involved. But I met this guy when I was in Burlington, Vermont, which if you know me, you know is a town that I am in love with. I almost called it a city. It doesn't feel big enough to be a city. Maybe it is. What's the, when is a city a city and when is a town a town? Ugh, I could Google this. Anyway, I thought I was going to keep this short. Guys, the point is this. I met Jeff Weiner when I was in Burlington in the fall, the fall of 2015. That's when we recorded this. It's been in the bank. It's been ready for you guys. I met him after a show that I did at a little restaurant called Skinny Pancake, restaurant slash performance space. Skinny Pancake, what's that all about? They make crepes. Do they have gluten-free ones? You know they do, you guys. Anyway, he uh, walked up to me with some nice compliments about my comedy and a beautiful open spirit and told me he was a clinical psychology student. And I was like, will you podcast with me? And he said, yes, because he's just a nice guy. He's a kind guy. He's a cool guy. And you will hear him nerd out about psychology. You'll hear both of us nerd out about psychology in this podcast. It was really fun. And I think a nice contrast to last week, which was extremely personal. This one, I mean, I get personal like I always do. Jeff was keeping it pretty profesh, pretty profesh. So we're not going to dive into his own personal issues, which you know is something that I love to do on the podcast. But we're going to get some feedback, some insight, and some knowledge. Uh, he probably wouldn't like that I said knowledge. Put it in air quotes. Put all of it in air quotes. We're going to get all of that stuff from Jeff Weiner. What else is there to say about him? He's an improviser with the Vermont Comedy Club. So how cool is that? This guy. He's a triple threat. <laughs> He's a psychology student. He's a pre-doctoral clinician and an improviser. The classical triple threat. 
He does improv with the Vermont Comedy Club. You guys, if you're anywhere near Vermont, if you're in Vermont, check it out because it can't be more than like a three hour drive from wherever you are. It's a tiny state. If you are anywhere near Vermont, go there. It's like, it's my favorite. It is my absolute favorite comedy club. You know, you know, I'm friends with the owners, Nate and Natalie. They've been on the podcast. They've created a beautiful thing there. Okay, guys, we're just going to get into it. And then I will see you again at the end of the episode for our outro, classic outro, and also to read a bunch of your emails. Okay. Bye, guys. Okay, so we're going to, should we just kick this off? Yeah. You ready for this? Yeah. All right. Okay, let's get into it. The question is, why are you so conflicted? Hmm. It's a trick question. This yeah. isn't really a personal podcast. I don't know if I'm so conflicted, but I <laughs> notice in a lot of my work that conflict is a major theme that either drives people into like a psychotherapy context or into a lot of other situations where a lot of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are happening. There we go. You study <laughs> conflict. Conflict. That's your deal. That's part of my deal. Yeah. Um, I'm a clinical psych grad student at UMass Amherst and a pre-doctoral clinician at UVM. And part of being trained as a clinical psych person, clinical psychologist, is understanding how conflict manifests in a lot of different ways, both on an individual level, like for a reason that someone might come in for therapy and on more of a systems or cultural or global level in terms of a lot of other issues that happen in our society. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the global and systemic level in a minute. Let's start with the place that- Start small. Yeah, with most people can relate to. Let's talk about the individual stuff. I don't even know where to begin because you're- Knowledge about all of this is, I imagine, so deep and so specific. Yeah, I think so. Time. So one, okay, so maybe let's think of like two or three kind of ideas that are helpful. So one, one idea, so I'm primarily trained in a framework of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, oh, which yes. is in theory um, the most evidence-based type of psychotherapy for kids and adolescents, and it is one of the most evidence-based types of treatments for adults. This will get to your question. Yeah. And because it shows how we think about what meaning it is. has results you can measure. It has totally it has results you can measure. Evidence based means that there are systematic randomized controlled trials that have tested its efficacy against other treatments. Right. And so in mental health world, you can say that you do a lot of things and you can sit in a room and talk about a lot of different things that might feel good to the therapist or the client, but it's not actually helping them, for example, resolve their conflict. Right. Um but in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, the idea is, and this is related to conflict, that what drives people in to therapy or when they're having a lot of uh, just um, emotional health stress um, is emotion related. And so I know from seeing your comedy, I know that you define emotions in the way that we do, which is with single words. So like happy, sad, mad, angry, scared. Mm -hmm. Elevations of those emotions might drive people to seek mental health services or social support. Any individual emotion is not a problem at all. Every emotion right. is healthy and great. It's how we manage and understand emotions that mm -hmm. is important. Cognitive behavioral therapy says that we can't change emotions directly. The way that we change emotions is through thoughts and behaviors. Cognitive means thoughts, behavioral is B. So mm -hmm. it's trying to understand how do we manage feelings with thoughts and behaviors. And so 
to go about conflict, the way that we think about conflict is how do we help understand and support people in their thoughts and behaviors and then assess and measure that over time to reduce those unhelpful or upsetting feelings, which are often very much, those thoughts and behaviors are very much engaged or entrenched in conflict-related tasks. Would you say that most people, when they have conflict with someone else, they're automatically labeling that as a bad thing, as a negative thing, and that has something to do with how they're then responding to it? Totally. I think that's an awesome point. And so one common thing, um, a lot of my advisor, whose name is Sally Powers, a lot of her research across her career and a lot of my training with her, this is research, but related to the clinical work, is that conflict is not bad. Conflict is actually good and it's adaptive for human functioning. It's how we engage in conflict and how we think about it. Those thoughts, exactly as you were saying, that help predict whether the way in which we engage in conflict is helpful for us and our partners and our families and our communities or is more detrimental. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? I think it makes sense. Conflict is inevitable, right? Totally, yes. And do you, I feel like there might be people out there just trying to avoid conflict, trying to not have conflict in their close relationships. And when there is, then they think, okay, this is a problem. Exactly. And so that's a really common thing that people say anybody talking to your friend at a bar or talking Mm -hmm. to someone in psychotherapy or whatever. So another common idea, so cognitive behavioral therapy comes from a thing called learning theory, which was originally developed in animal models in terms of what reinforces, you know, like Pavlov's dog. People may have learned about an intro psych, which is like what drives, what conditioning drives behavior. So um, in CBT, one common idea is that avoidance behavior, Mm -hmm. not doing something, prevents the bad things from happening. So if I don't bring up that my roommate leaves his dishes in the sink, Mm -hmm. that will, it negatively reinforces, unfortunately, a a bad cycle. So it makes the conflict worse by not addressing it. So avoidance is often a driver. Right, because the roommate just keeps leaving the dishes in the sink. So it's like a paradox where it's like, you know, people use the phrase like face your fear, which is a sort of goofy pop psych idea, but it comes from the idea that if we engage directly, thoughtfully mm-hmm. in these conversations, that's actually how we reduce negative experiences for us and our community. Right. Right. So like if we, if someone comes in and it's like, I'm super straightforward, like I'm, I'm having a really dif- difficult time in my relationship. I want to tell my partner, friend, mom, whatever, X, Y, and Z, but I'm not doing it. You could conceptualize that as avoidance behavior and then trying to figure out, okay, how do we then help shape how they're thinking and acting to then engage in whatever that behavior is? Right. And then the thought would be that from the therapist end, the theory of change is that theory of change is like a sort of jargony way of thinking about how- I want everyone to know you're doing like air quotes. Air quotes, yeah. So theory of change is an idea in psychotherapy. So psychotherapy is the idea of enactment of change over time. So if like, if I think someone is sad and I think that- Uh, a way to help them not be sad is to behaviorally activate, which is like go do things in the world, which Mm -hmm. is like one of the best treatments for depression. Then my theory of change for depression is you have to do things in the world. Right. So then by reducing avoidance, we're trying to help people, you know, do whatever or change whatever behavior is driving their conflict or close relationship stress. Yeah. That's a lot of words. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. Okay. And again, a lot of this stuff is very intuitive. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about clinical psychology is it systematically takes phenomenon that many of us have experienced or seen, mm-hmm. but tests them and explores them so we can sort of distill the best aspects for people. Yeah, it's really interesting. How do you do research on conflict? How do you measure conflict? I can't even imagine what this looks like from a research point of view. Totally. So it, it's so psychology is awesome because it contains many aspects of many types of science. So 
social science and natural biological science and the humanities. It's also a reason why a lot of psychologists and psychology graduate students feel insecure about their role of psychology. So in universities, there's often like, is psychology a social science or a natural science? So that's one thing to be aware of. I view it as the best science because it incorporates (laughs) all this stuff. So then how do you study conflict, right? That's such a hard phenomenon. It's much easier to say like, how do I study this particular cell? It's very easy to operationalize Mm -hmm. that. So I can talk about what our group does to study conflict. Yes, please. Um, A number of projects have done this, and there are a lot of different schools and researchers that do this work and are more knowledgeable about this than me. So we put that asterisk with this. Um, So in our group right now, we're just finishing up a four-year longitudinal study called the Growth and Early Marriage Project. Longitudinal means like long? It means over time. Okay, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we study them over time. So what this is, it's a study of married couples. There are different sex couples, um, 200... 228 of them and they come into our laboratory once every year over three or four years wow. and they um, engage in a conflict discussion in the lab so they say this is we know that this is an issue between us and this is what we're going to talk so about so for this that's lab. a great question so this is not a clinically referred sample they're folks who are married and we contact and we're saying hey you recently got married and you live in this region close to the university would you be willing to participate in this mm-hmm. study so we have folks come into the lab and we say we're looking for and they know that this is what they're signing up for, um, a continued area of conflict in your relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they individually report on that. Husbands say one, two, three, and wives say one, two, three. And we say, you both reported that you're concerned about whether or not Dave's parents should move into the house. Right. Because Jim, the dad, your father-in-law mm-hmm. is retired and okay. So we'd like you to work on trying to resolve that conflict. So then they go into this mock living room Mm -hmm. and they engage in that conversation. We film that. A mock living room. I love it. Yes. So it's like a couch (laughs) and uh, has like little endearing lamps, but it has cameras that is filmed. Mm -hmm. And so that video data is then coded with, we use two different coding schemes to assess that's been validated with tons and tons of other people right. about their types of behaviors. We're also actually indexing stress hormones. That's what I was going to ask about. So yeah. you're not just videoing them. Yeah. They're also wired up to something? They're not. So that's a really great question. So a lot of, there's like some folks who do this research. So we're interested in physiology. So we're interested in biopsychosocial developmental models mm-hmm. of mental health problems. Love <laughs> jargon. So that means biological, psychological, and social. So right. we get the behavioral data. So we film them and we see the wife turning her back and then saying, I wish you didn't say that to me. Mm-hmm. It really hurts my feelings when you did it. And so that's really rich content. Right. Right. And again, that's not a particular person. That's an example of a type of thing that I could say. Um, and then the biological data. So in our group, we're interested in, and psychologists are really interested in uh, stress hormones because you can measure them non-invasively. Oh, how? So we literally have folks with a plastic tube, like it's a two-inch plastic tube, Uh and they passively drool into this tube. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. After or... At six different times. Oh my gosh! Uh, before, during, and after. So not not right during. Not in the. They're not saying I. Your parents should move in. Uh, no, yeah. no, 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 not okay. like that. Um, before, during, and after. So we get. Um, oh my a gosh! Curve of stress reactivity before. Yeah. So in anticipation of a conflict, mm-hmm. during the conflict, and after the conflict. So cortisol. It takes about fifteen to twenty minutes. So it's like so much information. But like no, I love it. I'm just if you see my face, I'm all lit up because I'm like stress hormones are in your drool. This oh, is so yeah, cool. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is a cool thing, and there's some other cool 
you can assess cortisol in the hair and you can assess it in, in the hair and urine in human, not the hair in people's hair. No, no. But I mean, that's a newer technique. How is that even possible? Would that just be like stress over time? Like reading the rings you, on a tree? It, that is exactly the perfect analogy. That was okay. the analogy that, that I would make if I was uh, describing that. So people talk, so cortisol for, for folks who are listening to this, you might've heard about it. People talk about it as like the stress hormone. Again, I'm doing air quotes. Mm-hmm. Cortisol is also essential for life. If we didn't have cortisol, this is sort of like the theme of like conflict is important. So Mm -hmm. cortisol is a normal adaptive hormone in the human body. It's also... Would it be part about like, oh no, there's a tiger. Cortisol spikes. It helps me do stuff. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Or even just like I woke up in the morning and I need to get out of bed or I need to eat food or my metabolism <laughs> you is working. it into the modern or, world. Or, or like, just, you know, no, no, no. When, all, we, when we used to fight tigers all the time. Exactly. And <laughs> and the tiger analogy with fight or flight is for uh, perceived acute stress threat. Okay. That is exactly what that is. But there's lots of other ways that stress can engender itself. So like anticipating, talking about what movie should we go to tonight is also, it's not the same as there's a tiger in the woods, (laughs) OMG, but there is your, the way that our bodies respond to stress is, is not this super nuanced series of buttons and levers. It is like one on, and it is how our bodies are then individually calibrated about how much cortisol we sort of dump out or produce. Because then it's a cascade of other biological processes that allow us to do things to like prepare for action or prepare for the conflict or prepare for the conversation. Okay, I'm going to go totally sideways for a minute. We're going to come back to this. Yeah, that's cool. But I have wondered if um, doing stand-up comedy as I do, I don't get so nervous for little things anymore. But my life is about kind of every night at some point I'm like, you know, get ready for this thing. And I've wondered if I have messed with my own body systems by like constantly stressing myself out to some level that maybe what am I trying to say I wonder if my body has adapted to like higher level of stress hormones is that a thing that can happen yeah I mean it's particularly so part of my research is particularly with kids and and teenagers so the and again this will answer your or I don't will answer your question but I'll probably open other questions so the HPA axis the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis HPA axis yeah good old HPA axis that's cortisol and stress hormones are activated and produced from that system Mm -hmm. and so it's particularly sensitive for kids how malleable it is depends on a lot of different factors you're an adult so I don't know how malleable that was it generous is of you, per se you. <laughs> um however so one thing i was going to say is do you notice that you have disrupted sleep um after oh, yeah. these times were you and that could be a lot of different yeah. things yeah i mean i've never been great at sleeping okay so so that's one, not a secret here on the podcast no 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 so like yeah. one common thing so cortisol has a a diurnal pattern which means that if you're i'm making the shape with my arm which is like a ramp uh, a ramp so like Start. It's so cortisol is the highest in the morning when you wake up. So right. right in the morning, it's the highest, and then it goes down over the course of the day. However, people who are chronically stressed or under chronic conflict situations, yeah. either in close relationships or for more systemic societal oppression or whatever, may have imagine this ramp now becomes more flat, like and a so, horizontal line. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I, I went from people can imagine like a ramp to a more flat line, mm-hmm. and so what that's doing is the the higher levels of cortisol that help you sort of get going and stuff in the morning are lower and then the amount at the end of the day that helps you sleep that's associated with melatonin production and onset of sleep is up and not quite as flat so then you 
or starting off the day not quite this as great. This makes so much sense to me. I'm the hugest grump in the morning. I so, can't get started in the morning. And then at night I'm like, bang, ready to do this. Totally. And and for you as a comedian, oh, so interesting. and having seen your show, you have amazing energy and have all of your body is obviously like on fire in the good way, right? Mm-hmm. Totally lit up across all these different systems. But it makes sense then that might be harder to then, you know, the systems that are online to engage the, the tiger or the audience, yeah. whatever, are then also oh the God. opposite system that help you know, calm you down and go into All right. restful sleep. We are totally going to get back into the clinical research of conflict, which is kind of where we left things off and sure. the drooling in the tubes. This is almost too selfish and crazy, but Do I've it. never had this opportunity before. Yeah, yeah. I have often hypothesized, tell me if this could be true or not. Sure. Um, that I kind of, I grew up in a stressful environment, you sure. know, I was, a, I was a little being with kind of like uh, high levels of stress and adults around me. And I have hypothesized that I'm so comfortable doing stand-up and kind of mm. being in this like me versus them sort of high level of stress situation because that's kind of my comfort zone. Totally. And Is that so possible? Could it be a biological comfort zone? It totally could be. And there's wow. actually a theoretical framework when, which you can view that called stress inoculation theory, which is the idea that the lowest levels of stress are actual for kids mm-hmm. who grow up in like a bubble helicopter parent, nothing um, no stress ever ah. have not so great outcomes. And yes. so if it's, and again, this really depends on the situation or how you conceptualize it. Yeah. So if you were in a moderately stressful environment, so yeah, not yeah. one that was so stressful that you weren't able to Function. go to high school or get enough food or, um, have sort of normative yeah, but just relationships. Like a lot of drinking and punch outs on the lawn. To, yeah. So maybe and that might even go into the level above. I don't know if the stress inoculation, uh, literature would, would necessarily, that might be sort of in the upper level of that. I have no idea, but yeah. you might be. So another. So you might you might have experienced some of that stress inoculation. So you feel comfortable in that high stim and sort of environment, highly stimulating yeah, environment, yeah. Um, and in which you're able to engage um, and and sort of thrive in that. Additionally, the the framework of resilience theory, which is the idea. So risk is that like you know, a, a bad thing or a sort of a historically adverse event occurs and then leads to a quote unquote bad outcome. Resilience is the idea of positive adaptation in the context of stress and threat. So you might be someone who has a lot of resilience or a lot of grit, which is a lot of another psychological framework about how people persevere through stressful contexts and then thrive sort of partially because of it. Okay. So maybe learn that stress isn't negative necessarily. And learn that, that stress isn't necessarily negative and that you did things with your thoughts and feelings and behaviors, like CBT says, yeah. that allowed you to be particularly successful and you, you sort of use that negative energy to like fuel you and it made you better and stronger. And that could be a biological thing that yeah. you had. It could be something that you learned over time or it could be a gene environment type interaction where you have a biological thing and a, you know, psychological thing interacting. This whatever. is so interesting. Yeah, lots this of stuff. Is, so, oh man, there's so much to talk about. So, so much, so, so yeah. much to talk about. It's also insanely complicated. And like many of these things, you could spend a whole lifetime or career thinking about one of those words or phrases that I said, Yeah, but it's all the idea that the way that we develop in the world and the conflicts that we engage in occur at a biological level, a social level, a societal mm-hmm. level are different for different people. And some things for some people lead to great outcomes and some things for some people lead to not so great outcomes. And that's why we're trying to do this research to figure out for who, when, how much. Yes. And thank you for leading us back into the research. Now we're back to what we were talking about. But we about. don't have to do that. I mean... I, well, I don't know. Did, did I leave you hanging with anything? No, no, no. People I are drooling great. into tubes. You're oh, yeah, yeah. monitoring no, think, them with video. 
with the drool. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So with, with that study, and again, there's a lot of other research. If folks have read, John Gottman is a sort of famous psychologist. Uh, yes, I know that guy. Who's done this work. And so some of his work is similar to this. So if people read Blank, Malcolm Gladwell's book, mm-hmm. some of this research might be reminding you of that. This is in the a sort of a similar framework. He has some different ideas and goals than some of our work. But just if folks are... Uh, noticing that that's familiar. Um, but anyway, so one of the coding schemes that we use that folks might find interesting is this rapid marital interaction coding system. And so we look you at- You guys know what that's all about, yeah. rapid marital interaction. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and uh, and John Gottman's thing is like that you can look at these very small snippets. Some of that research is, is uh, a little bit contested in the field. I think some people think that it's awesome and then some people think that sometimes it's a little overstated. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I wouldn't necessarily comment on that. Specifically, what we're doing is that looking at these different types of behaviors and how certain types of adaptive, sort of generally good and Air maladaptive. Again, guys. Sorry, uh, adaptive <laughs> no, and maladaptive okay. um, behaviors. Okay. Why do you do the air quotes is because this is just the language that we're using to talk about I'm it. I'm using the language to talk about it, but a big criticism of academic mental health is that we're overly pathologizing of normative processes. So if I put on my shirt and tie and say human behavior that is maladaptive, duh, 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 I can imagine people having a negative response to that because it seems a little patriarchal. It seems a little didactic. Who are you to say what's maladaptive? Totally. Who are you? You're some random dude in grad school talking about these huge words like you you have no authority to say that. And I would say you're probably totally right. Mm -hmm. So the air quotes are a way of buffering the listener's perception of like, he's saying adaptive and yeah. maladaptive. That's Guys, so I'm not going to tell you anymore every time he's using air quotes, just assume <laughs> that he's always using air quotes. If it seems like something that's could be potentially, again, like sort of pejorative mm-hmm. or sort of like an overstatement, I might be using air quotes. But mm-hmm. again, that's because I know that people are way more complicated than any of these projects. Even these things we're synthesizing in the human experience is so much more complicated. Yeah. But so with the research... We look at adaptive behaviors, so like in relationship conflict, things like acceptance or relationship enhancing attributions or adapt um, sort of appropriate self-disclosure or humor, right? Those are all things in relationship conflict that are associated with pretty good outcomes. What was the second thing you said? Relationship enhancing attributions. What is that? That's a good question. It's sort of the, it's a, a type of statement that focuses on, it's a specific statement about what someone else is doing. All of those examples that I gave are statements or behaviors that you do towards someone else in a dyad. And they are the types of things that you would do that sort of commends and supports something that someone else did. So for example, our relation, um, Susan, our relationship is so good because you are such a thoughtful, caring mother. I really appreciate how you um, always pick up Derek from the basketball practice, whatever. Yeah. So that's enhancing the relationship by saying- Thanks like, for not abandoning our son at basketball. Yeah, yeah I know. The improv, <laughs> if any improv people are listening to this, they might laugh because I mistakenly use Derek a lot as my generic like Yeah, we all have our name. go-to names. I know. That's, that's just I also been... go to Susan all the time oh, as funny. well. Yeah. Derek is in mine, one of mine recently. That's so funny. Um, but anyway, so that's like a relationship enhancing attribution. Um, okay. And then on the other end of the spectrum, and these are, again, some people who are listening will be like, yeah, of course these are bad behaviors. So psychological abuse, which is just like being emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, hostility, which is similar, but it's not quite as overt, but it's being engaging with someone in a hospital hostile way mm-hmm. withdrawing from conflict so that's like the avoidance i was right. talking about so and this is particularly common in, in men oh, in different sex relationships because men are socialized to not engage in emotionally 
salient conversations, at least in westernized right. cultures. So they pull away. Men, again, broadly, these are generalizations, yeah. air quotes, again, yeah. to pull away. But if you withdraw, particularly if you're in a dyad relationship where your partner needs a lot of support, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's uh, relation or um, distress maintaining attributions is the other one I want to mention, which is the sort of the opposite I said, where it's you make an attribution about someone else's behavior that it's like, Susan, um, our relationship is so bad because you never picked Derek up from basketball. Right. So it's saying like it propels the negativeness. Whether or not they think that's true or not, that's probably not going to lead to a positive interaction. Totally. Right? Yeah. Also, there's another variable that we look at called dysphoric affect, which is sort of like uh, having flat affect is like not being able to show emotion. Dysphoric affect is often associated with high levels of depression. So partner psychopathology. So if someone's really depressed, right, that has a negative impact on folks as well. Yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> so lots of content, lots of uh, jargony terms to explain sort of pretty regular human experiences. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty excited about this and I'm all lit up because it's so fascinating to think about. I feel like I'm just chipping away at this iceberg of oh, um, yeah. conflict in human relationships. And you're right. It's, it's, that's just such a fascinating totally. and topic. Like, and like any of these things, people know that there are averages associated with other averages. So the way that we do science is like we take the mean of a hundred different people and mm-hmm. how that's associated with some outcome variable, a mean of something else. But the standard deviation, which means how much that varies on an individual variable, is it can be very large uh-huh. on either end. So any of these things that we're saying, someone who's listening could be like, oh, wow, that is totally reflective of my relationship if they're sort of in that mean right. or say their standard deviation is way above or way below. They're like, man, that's totally not relevant to my experience or my life. Is is this research relevant to me? And so it's like, well, maybe, yes, maybe no. Take it with salt and yeah. then apply the, you know, particular your own particular experiences to it. This is maybe too big of a question. Can you talk at all about some of the things you've learned in this research? Like what what are the conclusions that we have from yeah. the work? Can you? Sure, Or yeah. even just focus on one or focus on something that was particularly interesting and surprising to you? So like we know from attachment theory, which is one large framework for understanding relationships that like secure-based relationships rather than um, insecure, um, avoidant or insecure um, anxious relationships are generally more helpful. So that's a secure base is when you basically establish. So if, if you're in your relationship with someone mm-hmm. and you're thinking that you have a secure base, that's probably good, which is basically saying you can be emotionally available and communicate, but you also can take time away where you're not worried that the person is going to leave you and you don't avoid conversations about intimacy or distress or conflict. Right. So secure base relationships, we know for parent-child relationships and adult-close relationships regardless of orientation or whatever, are generally associated with good outcomes. We also know, and this is much newer research for in, in like dyadic process modeling, so looking at how two different people change over time, we know that this is some of my um, advisor's old work and then another researcher, Paula Pietramonico, who runs the, the GEM lab, knowing that the way that certain people act, so like there are certain combinations of couples that sort of generally work better than others. So if you have a oh. husband, and that, and that work better, again, be, I did air quotes, quotes, I did air guys. quotes, work better than others in terms of relationship satisfaction and lower levels of depression and stuff like that. So if you have a really avoidant, one partner is very avoidant and the other one is very anxious, that might not be very good because mm-hmm. one person is, need, needs a lot of support and one person is pulling away. And so you can imagine like two magnets, that's yeah. not really that great. So if you have one person who's more secure and then one person who's 
more anxious or more avoidant, that secure person can help foster a more adaptive relationship. So if you have two people who are really worried about the relationship, that's probably associated with some of the more difficult outcomes in terms of like, I'm really, you know, one partner is really, really worried about a lot of different things. And then another partner is worried about a lot of different sort of unrelated things. And so that's all a mishmash. That's associated with not great outcomes. Yeah, I think that those are main things. And then oh, one you other thing. You just gave the worriers more to worry about, you realize. There's well, something out there going, I'm always worried. Oh, and I have to worry about these not great outcomes. So so, to, so <laughs> what I would say to those folks is, again, it, worry is not the problem. Avoiding engaging with the worry or trying to identify mm. what that worry about, that's not necessarily more of the problem, but more of the area you should focus on. Right. If we ruminate about what we're worried about, so rumination is a generally maladaptive way of engaging with worry. So mm-hmm. just like, oh, what if I, I should do that? No, but thinking about that means I'm bad. If I worry whether or not my partner and I should break up, that's bad. So that probably means that I'm a bad person. And that further clarifies my core belief that I'm unlovable, which my dad reinforced when yeah. I was a little kid, right? All this stuff. The worry itself is not a is not necessarily bad. It's more how you engage with the worry and opening up to your partner or opening up to a therapist or a friend or whoever um, about what the thoughts behind that worry are mm, about. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the thing. So it's not that, so again, like being anxious, quote unquote, or being yeah. sad, quote unquote, I have more quotes, um, are, is not bad. It's how you talk about that and how you engage with that. Mm-hmm. That's important. Because I, I can get into this less so now that I'm in therapy myself, mm. but I think a lot of people who worry get into that spiral of worry and of judging that and like, totally. I'm worried, I shouldn't be worried, but I can't exactly. stop it. And it's just a horrible spiral. Totally. And that's like a, a archetype of human worry um, in cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes we use a thing called like the downward arrow technique to try to identify that cognitive spiral. Mm-hmm. So many worries we can take. A particular what's what's an example of a relative if you want to go through this so what's an example of like a relatively innocuous thing that someone could be worried about oh just anyone any anyone or we could do you if you want to do that and we can go through it for you or we can do just a, a I don't know help thing. you're an improviser as well help me think of some innocuous oh, something things. um so my um how about someone has a situation where uh someone didn't they called their friend and their friend didn't pick up the phone so okay. i called oh yeah this is classic good um, example i you. called jim yeah my buddy because um it's fantasy football draft weekend and uh, we were going to meet up and talk about who, which running backs we were excited about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a salient <laughs> metaphor for your listeners. So we we're going to talk about if Marshawn Lynch was a good draft pick or LaShawn McCoy. Who knows? Okay, so yeah. I called Jim. I'm really pumped. He doesn't pick up. So hmm, that's on the surface. Yeah. So then downward arrow or this negative cognitive spiral. What could be the next thing? Can I do this for you? Because I can easily do You know, you know the, you know everyone. I can you, I'm sure do you know. So take it down all the way to a core belief. Um. Oh, all the way to a core belief. I or, was, go, or go as far. And I was I'll... almost going to start at a core belief. I was going to be like, uh, Jim doesn't want to pick up the phone because he's mad at me. Yeah, okay. Or he's he's like avoiding me. Yeah, that's fine. Why? Because I probably did something yeah. that I don't know about yeah. that made him angry. What could I have possibly done? Oh, yeah, I talked about this just last week. I got there in four. What could I have possibly done? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just bad and wrong. Yeah, exactly. That's so, kind of it. Yeah, it's great. So... And, and the more that we're able to phrase them not as questions, but as statements is even more helpful to understanding the, the worry yeah. thing. So the core belief is I'm bad and wrong. No, people don't stay up. Don't, people aren't up at night and feeling terrible because Jim didn't pick up the phone. They are feeling terrible because they are they thought I am bad and wrong. And that is intense. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so then the concern for either conflict or how this stuff sort of unravels over time is when those thoughts, when uh, Jim or whoever, whatever the name of the guy was, 
doesn't get that phone call or doesn't the guy doesn't answer the phone back, that's when that negative sort of cognitive cycle that you mentioned goes on. Mm-hmm. And so then a big goal for this character would be to try to identify what our alternative thoughts are about why we would, one classic thing we would do is try to understand what could be some alternatives about why the person yeah. didn't pick up the phone. You know the, other th- the other place I was going to go with it was J- with Jim, but I couldn't even imagine how to get down to a core belief, but I think I just did. Yeah, was core belief, core be belief like, is like the the um, w- the one that you said, um, I'm bad, bad and wrong. wrong. That's yeah. a core belief. I but I had this other stream belief. about Jim not answering the phone, yeah, which yeah. was immediately like, well, Jim's dead. Um, okay, cool. And I thought it Not ended cool there. Not cool that he's dead, but... <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. So Jim's dead. Um, I thought it ended there, but I think what is at the bottom of that for me yeah. when I jump to like, oh my God, somebody's dead, yeah. is that, you know, okay, so Jim's dead. Jim was my really good friend. We had a great time together. I really love Jim. Mm-hmm. Good things don't last sort of thing. Or I don't deserve happiness. Or the other shoe is always going to drop. That sort of thing. Yeah. And so people, I'm not air quoting. I'm now aggressively nodding my head (laughs) up and down. And right. And so for you, if those are your thought processes, the super important thing, again, why that sort of like patriarchal didactic, like this is how core beliefs work. It's way more important to go to someone, the thoughts within themselves and be like, how do you think those are connected? And so you just identified multiple different possible streams of like the thought process related to the same kind of outcome. And so it would be like, man, we would want to figure out, okay, for you, you're worried about good things not lasting. And that's a big thing. That's a theme. I have to tell you this now. (laughs) This is like crazy personal. And I didn't know that we were going to end up here. But um, a couple weeks ago, I just realized that I had an experience that blended those two things. It blended I'm bad and wrong with good things don't last. And this is truly insane. Um, But I know that people have insane thoughts. And so I just let it happen. And I was amused by it. But I was staying at a and b with my girlfriend. It was this giant like uh victorian style mansion Mm -hmm. sort of thing so it had an element of like spookiness to it or something Mm -hmm. and we were in our room together and she left to go look for a lighter or something but she didn't say goodbye when she left the room like we had come home from somewhere and then we were kind of milling about it was a big room with different areas so she left but that's very unusual for us that she wouldn't at least say hey i'm gonna go do this thing or i'll be back in a second right she left and then i was like oh my god oh my god where is she and then i was like uh she probably won't went to go get something, but then I thought she probably went to go get something. Oh, what if um what if ghosts? Yep. <laughs> maybe ghosts. Sure. Maybe ghosts took her one way or another. And then I was like, No, a murderer. What if there's a murderer and they somehow silently snatched her out of the room and I didn't mm. know about it? And then I went, What if I'm the murderer and I'm having a psychotic break and I just murdered her and I don't know that and now I'm alone? in this room and I think I'm in this room. And then I immediately was like, okay, that's not real. Yeah. But I actually, my imagination took that yeah. trip. Yeah. And it only just occurred to me right now, it's like those are those two weird core beliefs that I have that good things sure. don't last and somehow I'm bad. Yeah. yeah. And 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 those types of worries I think are can be pretty, on one hand, they're very specific to you. Yeah. But our brains do these, like part of the hard part of the human experience is Mm -hmm. that our brains have the capacity to do that kind of stuff. Um, And that's part of the burden of being a person Mm -hmm. is the, the thrill of being able to engage in a cognitive capacity, but also knowing that a thought is just a thought. Mm -hmm. And if I have like, there's an idea called thought action fusion, which is thinking that a thought, thinking a thought um, doesn't mean that you actually did it. Mm-hmm. So um, thought, action, fusion. Yeah, it's particularly used in OCD research, uh-huh. um, uh, which uh, my wife Megan, who's also a clinical psych grad student, is much more expert on than me. Um, but it's the idea that if people have worried thoughts about particular 
um, behaviors or things that they would engage in, the act of thinking about it is just as bad as doing it. And so you could imagine someone, if they have a thought, oh, I, I, you know, my, my neighbor is such a jerk. I could just kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm imagining killing him. And then they, and they latch onto that. They latch onto that. And then it's, oh my God, I can't believe I thought that. Okay. I need to not think that anymore. I need to, another thing called thought suppression. Try mm-hmm. to not think that. I need to but not think that is so impossible, hard. right? And as we said with cognitive behavioral therapy earlier, it's really hard to change an emotion directly. Right. So we need to understand more. What are you doing and what purpose does that serve? And are you trying to avoid that thought? Anyway, we can get into the crazy cognitive ecosystem. But um, what would you do there, though? Would you just try to replace the thought, I want to kill my neighbor with like, yeah, sometimes people want to kill their neighbors. Some people, sometimes <laughs> people have the thought that they want to kill their neighbors. Uh-huh. Um, because the difference, for example, between OCD and someone who has um, psychosis or schizophrenia, potentially, is that the individual with some OCD spectrum symptoms is doesn't want to have those thoughts and feels really bad about them and knows that they're kind of quote unquote crazy, whereas someone who is having more of a significant um, thought disorder may not be as aware that the thoughts are unusual. They might be aware, but they may be less aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so that's so the process with the OCD stuff, it's again different than what, what we're talking about with you in particular, but the idea that having thoughts and then worrying about thoughts right. and then trying to, how do we engage with thoughts or how do we do with that? Or do we take all thoughts so seriously is particularly um, important. So here's another thing for folks. Um, if people listen to so the Invisibilia like podcast, oh, yeah. there was one that was particularly popular in there and on the listservs for psychology that I'm on. People was were it talking the, about like, maybe the first one. I think it might've been the first yeah. one. Yeah. And like they talk about first wave psychotherapy, which is kind of like, more old school psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, which people think about Freud. The second sort of phase started sort of 60s-ish, which is cognitive behavioral therapy and more behavioral stuff that I was talking about. But then the third wave, which is pretty related to the second wave, is the idea of more acceptance and mindfulness-based strategies for Mm -hmm. managing stress and conflict. And another strategy, what we were talking about is like a thought is just a thought, is just being okay with having sort of unusual thoughts and everyone has unusual thoughts and that doesn't mean anything in particular about me and not trying to change it or control it Uh or think of a realistic alternative it's just accepting that like oh yeah sometimes as you said sometimes people think about killing their neighbor and whatever it's kind of buddhist really well a lot of the totally meditative to just kind of let the thoughts come and go and don't attach to them and exactly well a lot of the a lot of that research and a lot of the framework came from sort of combining components from cognitive behavioral work and more eastern tradition either spirituality and medicine like buddhism and things Mm -hmm. like that for there's a modality called acceptance and commitment therapy which uses a lot of that stuff there's mindfulness-based stress reduction which sort of is combining these sort of behavioral components and mindfulness components which a lot of people are very excited about in yeah. our field right now because this it combines is, like the, the sort of the best of both worlds in some ways yeah this is really cool is all i was gonna say there yeah well it is yeah. cool yeah it's really sweet and then it's you know there's a lot of research that needs to be done in terms of figuring out for who or when is it helpful to try to restructure a thought and mm-hmm. for who and when is it helpful to try and just accept a thought Right. Ah, yeah. So like for in a conflict, you know, if we're going again, using this as our sort of anchor yeah. situation, if someone's fighting with their partner and one of the issues is like, I worry that my partner is, what were the example that you gave? Like your partner is dead because she didn't come back. Or <laughs> yeah, something it's like really that. crazy, but yeah. Well, so then you could say, okay, 
I can do that cognitive restructuring technique with sort of like, what's the likelihood that she's actually dead? Well, we're in a safe neighborhood and I just saw her leave 10 minutes ago to get Thai food. It takes about five minutes to get there. So she'll probably be back in the next two minutes. So if she's not back in the next two minutes, then maybe I'll call her. Whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's like very structured or it's just the more mindfulness approach would be like, okay, that's just a thought and accepting that thought and just watching it float by Mm -hmm. rather than trying to specifically engage with it to change it. Uh, Does that that make sense? It does make sense. But I think I've always done the first thing. Totally. And I think most people do the first one way more often because Mm -hmm. it makes a lot more sense. And sometimes it works really well. It doesn't work very well in situations that are situations that are really hard to change like grief Mm -hmm. for example um, or intractable conflict where like you really can't necessarily change something right yeah okay can we talk about conflict on more of this structural sure am i using the global yeah sure that sounds good to me okay what are you interested or curious about or what do you think Well, off mic we were talking about your work with refugees yeah so i just want to know more about that and i understand that it's potentially going to get heavy and oh yeah yeah, yeah. interrupt you to make a lot of smart ass comments no 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 i think it's really interesting well folks are totally and i've been super privileged to be involved in this work more recently um so i've lived in we're in Burlington, Vermont right now. And so I've lived in Burlington for like a year and a quarter. Um, and I've been involved in work with a specialty clinic called the Connecting Cultures Clinic at the Behavior Therapy and Psychotherapy Center at the University of Vermont. And so Burlington, this will set the individual stage for the broader global thing. Burlington is one of a number of refugee resettlement sites in the United States. I didn't so, know that. So yes. And so people think Vermont and it's white and liberal and progressive, which it is, but it also has several thousand international refugees or new americans is another term that we use Mm -hmm. Um, and so other places in the u.s burlington um, would be such a wonderful introduction to the u.s yes and no okay tell me well but pros and cons um people are interested in that particular research question i would refer to you to the research of geographer uh pablo bose at the university of vermont who i met recently who is a very engaging speaker and does research specifically on resettlement and more rural populations but the the bigger thing is so Burlington is one place where people get resettled, you know, Minnesota and New York and a lot of other places mm-hmm. folks are moving to. And people, you know, if you see CNN or your Facebook feed, you know that the Syrian refugee crisis is particularly salient for a lot of folks. There are millions of refugees in the world and people are and, and refugee. The idea of a refugee, again, quotes again, <laughs> is the idea of someone being displaced for sociocultural political reasons where they're systematically persecuted. That to me sounds like a fancy way of saying conflict. Yeah. And people are displaced for a lot of different reasons and looking for a safe place to go. And so with our work at UVM, we're trying to understand some of the systems and support processes to help folks who are new Americans adapt to a new culture. So there's like post-migration stressors. A lot of folks who are um, identified as refugees also have a relatively significant trauma and sometimes a torture history because if you have to leave the place that you were born and or lived and you're no longer allowed to be there, mm-hmm. often these are countries that have a lot of violence or a lot of political unrest um, and folks have a lot of an enormous amount of stress that they're holding as they come to a new place. And so being in Burlington in the winter, Um, and navigating the icy roads and 
whatever is Actually, hard. Actually, yeah, winter is super stressful. Is really hard, particularly if you grew up in East Africa mm-hmm. and say you're also learning the language and you also are worried about trying to obtain citizenship. Um, you also are working the night shift at a really difficult, physically laborious job. You also have symptoms associated with a lot of, um, we call it complex traumatic stress because it's an adaptive response. Post-traumatic stress is about a very specific response to an event. Right. So if someone has PTSD, maybe because a really horrible event happened to them, they were in a horrible car accident, and that's the sort of moment. Complex traumatic stress is that many really difficult things happened, and they continue to happen, and your community is still disenfranchised, and there are people still in the country that you came from that are having a difficult time, and so you're having all of this stuff. And so then how do you deal with that? And then all that's happening, and then you still, if you're a parent, you still have a kid, and the kid still wants to go out and go play video games at the arcade, and so you still have to manage that kind of stuff too, right? I'm stressed just thinking about it. Totally, so there's so much, I mean, and I have so, I like, I have... Learned, I feel like I've learned much more than maybe I've provided as a clinician or researcher mm. with a lot of these folks. Super amazing, unbelievably courageous. And that, that's, like an under, that's like a crass understatement, even saying that stuff. But people manage in the world in a lot of different ways. And, but then the, so then the big you know, soapbox issue, if people want to be like, what do I do, is we need to be able to support individuals both getting to a safe place and then continued support over time because being safe doesn't mean, oh, now I'm in the new place. I have safe haven. Yeah, no, good luck to you. Right. So now it's okay and we need support systems for health and social work and mm-hmm. legal issues and language and education and vocational training mm-hmm. and fun psychosocial stuff, being able to go to a baseball game and eat yeah. pizza and all these things that are part of... Being a real American. Being a real, <laughs> um, being a real American or being part of being an integrated human being where you can you know still engage in the cultural components that are meaningful for you Mm -hmm. without having so much conflict with the current culture that you're in so the united states was founded because of or you know was evolved because of immigration Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is how people integrate their cultural identity with the as you said like america (laughs) kind of thing and so then supporting folks in that complicated process as well so that's a lot of different ideas but again that's another way that conflict unfolds on a more global level and again just from my perspective of being involved with folks um in this little city in new england yeah it's so interesting Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up kind of soon. You have a, you have a lot of other things to do today. You've squeezed me into your week quite generously. Totally fine. I was glad to do it. Um, but we do have about 10 minutes. Is there anything that you want to make sure to say? Well, I guess one thing is I hope people find a lot of this information interesting and potentially helpful. I'm far from an expert on any of these ideas. Again, I'm a fifth-year graduate student, so I've been lucky to learn a lot about this, but I've done a lot more maybe learning than producing of a lot of these ideas. So a lot of other researchers have done a lot of this hard work. So if you have access to either PubMed or PsychInfo or an academic library, you can look up some of these terms. If you're interested in like geeking out with some of these ideas, you can find the academic articles. Also, the National Institute of Health has many of these research articles available. Additionally, there's a lot of popular press content that is built from a lot of these ideas. But what I would encourage folks to do is when people are reading content with psychology related things like say you see clickbait on Mm -hmm. buzzfeed that's like six signs that your insert mental health concern or whatever understand that there's a lot of science happening in psychology and there's a lot of not science and a lot of pseudoscience happening and so pseudoscience 
can be potentially detrimental because it's conflating ideas that haven't necessarily been tested. And maybe a lot of the issue is just it hasn't been tested yet. But like, we don't know that cumin will cure that relationship worry you're having with your mom or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so just to go back to the science and to use your own experience, but combine that with the literature and what folks who are trying to think about this deeply so that way you can apply it to your life. Does that kind of make sense? It makes sense. I would also um, encourage people to put air quotes around every single word in an article <laughs> that they see on BuzzFeed. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's just the idea of taking all of it with like a many grains of research salt. So none of these things are true all of the time. And even the things that I'm saying, there might be things that are, are generalizations or things that aren't totally accurate or specific. So you want to say like, well, what about that is what about that is true, and what about that is is relevant for my situation or the variable that I'm interested in? Mm-hmm. Um, so say like, oh, we've reduced relationship conflict, but we've decreased. So we've reduced relationship conflict, but we've increased anxiety and increased um, drinking behavior. So it's like, okay, well, that's not necessarily good. So we want to think about what variables or what outcomes you're interested in and focusing on those rather than generalizing across a lot of different things. Right. Okay. So it's not good to generalize. This has been a huge disclaimer. That said, how can people reduce conflict? Give us some practical tips for people reducing conflicts in their intimate relationships. Totally. I think that's great. So again, if I'm coming from the CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy framework, Mm -hmm. one big thing is to think about in any of these situations, how are your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors related. So how we, and again, cognitive neuroscience has troubles with a lot of these definitions. This is how we define things. So a feeling or a thought, or rather a feeling or an emotion is one word. You can usually see it on your face. You usually Mm -hmm. have a physiological component in your body. So it's a feeling or an emotion. A thought is anything that when you close your eyes, you can see, imagine, hear, whatever in your brain. So it can be words or sentences or whatever. And behavior are things that you do. Mm-hmm. move and you can see you can see them so what i would say how do you re- resolving conflict is a later step i would say trying to understand how your thoughts feelings and behaviors are related to each other and how different situations impact them and how situations with your partner or close relationship impact how they change and how you act and then try to do like a little mini we would call it like functional analysis where okay. it's like what okay so we why Okay, so I uh, Janice is sleeping on the couch tonight because she and Sarah had a big fight. So I would, and say Janice is really upset about that. So I would say, okay, Janice, maybe we can, let's go back like a little detective yeah. or a big detective, whatever, and try to trace all those steps, thought, feeling, and behavior processes all the way back. Oh, we go back to seeing that when Sarah didn't call her because she was late because she's a lawyer and she had a case that went really late, then Janice felt insulted and Janice is a paralegal and so she thinks that Sarah doesn't respect her job as much, blah, 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 but it just was because, whatever, Sarah's phone died or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so often many of these conflicts are not that important. Another thing yes. is that often when we fight in relationships, it's about it's not about the manifest content, it's about latent content, right. which is a more old school idea, which is the idea that if someone comes home from work and they say, why is this jar of beans on the table? I, you always do something like that. They don't care about the beans. They care about what beans on the table means about the relationship mm-hmm. because it means they interpret their thoughts. You know that I don't like beans. You know that if you're going to have beans, you have to put them downstairs in the basement. If you don't put them downstairs in the basement, it means that you don't respect me. Mm-hmm. If you don't respect me, then 
why did I marry you in the first place? Right. Right. So those are the types of things. So I would say that's a big. You way. know, it's basement beans or no beans. Yeah, in right. House. Exactly. But so it's not no, who, who cares about the thing on the surface. But right. if you look at your own relationships and this is true for most human beings, we don't we often fight or argue and have conflict about about silly things, which is not bad. That's often how we, you know, anger is a helpful emotion sometimes, mm-hmm. but how we use it and how we understand that. Right. Yeah. To then have the probably more important conversation about respect and listening, things like that. Okay. Well, I think you fixed us all. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, folks, there's there's a lot of really good information out there. But I think again, trying to find understanding some of these processes, like trying to examine what how you're thinking and acting and and behaving in your particular situations, I think is a really good first step for trying to unpack some of the stuff. And again, this is not to over pathologize. This is normal stuff that happens for literally billions of people in the world. And so it's just trying how you can use some of these processes to help you and your family. Good luck to you and your family, you guys. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It's always good to learn a thing. Oh my gosh, what are you going to teach us? Something that I have really enjoyed for many years is taking care of houseplants, in particular uh, succulents and cacti. Um, And for my birthday recently, my wife got me a book called The Complete Houseplant Survival Manual, um, which has really great information if anyone's interested about plants. So one fact is just... Could you say the name of the author because it's amazing? Yes, Barbara Pleasant. Pleasant, you guys. Author of Garden Stone. And if anyone is interested in home indoor gardening, uh, I recommend the complete houseplant survival manual. From the psychological perspective, there is some emerging evidence that gardening and taking care of plants has positive psychological benefits. That's an aside. But one thing that I did learn from this recently is that historically, actually, here's two things. Okay. So one one thing is the, the, emergen, the, the emergence of houseplant ownership, like when that became particularly popular, was after the invention of a particular product. And that particular product was clear, flat window glass because it was much, much easier for, for a long time to produce fancy, you know, artisanal glass objects, Mm -hmm. um, like in a kiln, but making like more mass produced flat, clear window glass is, although it doesn't look that cool, is very hard and was for a long time only available to extremely wealthy people. This is fascinating. And so with the invent, the advent, invent of glass windows, people could take care of plants. And so then historically houseplants were then for a while, a symbol of sort of like upper middle class or upper wealth. But over time, contemporary, like sort of the contemporary use of houseplants has in our society has become less about impressing other people in the way that it was in sort of the 1800s. And it's much more about impressing and taking care of ourselves, which is is so interesting. So in the 1800s, was it about like, Look at my opulent window glass. Exactly. I think so. If, these, if, I, if I read this... Look at this jungle that I maintain. If I read the introduction of the complete houseplant survival manual correctly, it was much more about, yeah, like, like look at my foyer and like look at this Im- immaculate, you know, foliage or whatever. But they were saying that since sort of the 1970s, and I don't know if this is qualitative or quantitative, I don't have any citations um, for this, but that houseplant ownership is much more about, and I can identify with this, is much more like a contemplative, like taking care of bonsais or whatever, is like a much more contemplative practice for taking care of ourselves. And it is really, really fun to take care of plants. I'm looking right here 
at like 12 different plants yeah. and it's really fun to take care of something. I think there's something innately human about that. And, um, I don't know. I really enjoy it. And so I, the thing to learn is house plants are great. And I really recommend folks taking care of a plant if you don't already have one or some. Get out there and get a plant, you guys. <laughs> How good was that? How interesting was that? What a man Jeff is. He, he likes to talk about stuff. He likes to nerd out about stuff, but he doesn't take any of it or his own authority too seriously. Put the whole thing in air quotes. Put every word that he said in air quotes, and then he would be happy. Thank you for talking to me, Jeff. I'm sure you're listening. And now, now everybody, uh, let's do some listener feedback. Listener feedback. Here we go. Listeners. Hi, everyone. I have a bunch of emails that I have copy and pasted into this document here, and I'm going to read snippets from different ones and we'll get to know each other a little bit. Do you guys want to do that? I do. Here's the other thing. Um, many of you, I asked for permission to read these and some of you I didn't. I could because, And it's not because I don't care. It's just because I'm very poorly organized and I'm assuming you don't care. So I'm just going to use first names if I use names at all and tell you a little bit about your own selves. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Let me give, first of all, a shout out to Katie in Melbourne. I am sorry I wasn't at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year, but I will be next year. So just hang on. Hang on for that. And then, guys, check this out. Did you know that we have a listener from Argentina? Her name is Inez. Oh. Okay. Well, as I am uh, reading her email more closely, she just has very kind words for me. So thank you, Inez. I really appreciate this. What a nice person you are. Guys, Inez is out there. Hi, Inez. And you know what? All the love to you. That's how she signed her email. Whew, what an open-hearted human being from Argentina. Hi, Inez. Ooh, guys, here's one. I can't read her name because check this out. This is so exciting. This is what she says. I'm an army medic currently riding in a super crowded 15-passenger van en route to a support miss mission at Fort Bragg. You mentioned that you like to know what people are doing when they listen to your podcast, so I thought I'd share. I'm not a particularly eloquent person, but I think you should know. I appreciate what you share with the world. Your openness and honesty is refreshing. I'm a fellow lady lover. She didn't, and this is how I'm assuming that she said it in that tone. I'm a fellow lady lover, but I'm not able to be super open about it in this moment. So listening to your chats with your friends and yourself is really quite nice. So yeah, you're awesome. You do you. Keep sharing your feels. I'm out. And then she put, P.S. Canada is the best. Don't tell the army. They're probably reading this right now. Shit. Ooh, so that was from a mystery listener. We're going to call her W. Oh, guys, as I was catching up on your emails, I found this really old one from Michelle. This is from the beginning of January. And she wanted me to writ wish, wish, Rach. That's hard to say, wish, Rach. She wanted me to wish, Rach, a good semester. And she said that they would both be graduating in the spring. So I hope you're not graduated yet, Rach. Have a good semester. Have a good end of your semester. Or uh, I hope you had a good semester if that has already happened for you. Was it, would anybody be graduated yet? It's only April. Maybe you have, Rach. But anyway, what you should know is that Michelle uh, says hi, and she misses you. And uh, there you go. There you have it. I hope that she's a friend of yours, Rach, and I hope that this this uh, this little message is welcome to you. What if Michelle's your stalker? What if Michelle's using me to kind of freak you out via the podcast? I hope she's not, Rach. I hope you guys are still buddies, but why does she have to miss you? Where is she? Where are you? Send Michelle an email if she is indeed your friend and tell her thanks for reaching out to me to reach out to you. If she's a weird stalker, I don't know what. Call the police. Good luck to you. Oh, hey, guys. I'm finding a lot of other emails, and I'm not going to read them all, but I just want to give shout-outs. Let's just give sh quick shout-outs to Barbara. Let's give a shout-out to Sai. Let's give a shout-out to Steven. Hey, guys. I appreciated all of your emails. Oh, here's Mark. Here's Mark's 
I almost said your last name. Here's Mark. <laughs> and do you know what he says? This is really fun. He says, if it all feels a bit too much, just remember that everything is Raymond and there's nothing you can do about that. Keep it real, homie. So I, I like this idea, guys, of everything is Raymond. Just, uh, you know, being our thing. I think I've decided that at the end of all the podcasts, we're going to just say, keep it Raymond. <laughs> and it can mean whatever we want it to mean. So thank you, Mark, for reminding me that everything is Raymond. Oh, guys, here's Adrian, because I do really wonder how a lot of you guys are listening to the podcast. She says, I mostly listen while I'm at work, which is with Disney on ice in the costume shop. Like right now, I'm working on Flynn Rider from Tangled. I've amassed a crazy amount of Disney knowledge. Very interesting. Hey, Adrian. Hope things are going well for you there in the Disney on Ice area. Hey, guys. It's Patrick World. He's, he starts by saying that things are partially Raymond. And uh, he's, uh, he's pretty bummed about Prince's death, as I think we all are. And he's just trying to keep his head above water with admin. So if you got any love for Patrick World, and I know you do. Guys, why don't you send Patrick World like a sweet a sweet tweet? <laughs> a sweet tweet? You can do it because he has made, you know this because I because I mention it in all the podcasts, but he made our Learn a Thing theme music. He made our Everything is Raymond sitcom theme for the sitcom that doesn't exist, that only exists in our minds. If you got a little time in your day, why don't you send some love to Patrick from the podcast? How fun would that be, you guys? His Twitter handle is GetPatrick, G-E-T, Patrick. That's Patrick World for you. Write him. Tell him, hey, tell him the podcast sent you. Send him a little love, but not too much love. He's married, you guys. Don't get weird about this, okay? Oh, guys, here's Georgina. Hi, Georgina. Thank you for writing. Georgina said she listens to the podcast when she is driving for work. She's a social worker, so she travels to her clients, and she says, podcasts like yours keep me company along the way. I feel that, Georgina. That's why I listen to podcasts, too, to be kept company, usually while I'm walking. Here we have Christina who signed her message that she's an Aussie fan. Hi, Christina. Thank you for your message. Here we have Simon. What does Simon have to say? Here's what Simon's been up to. I'm not reading all of everybody's things because mostly people are just being very sweet with me and sending encouraging words, which, guys, I totally appreciate. Keep it coming. Simon says, you've asked what we've been up to. I've recently become hooked on watching videos of people painting landscapes. I didn't even know that was a thing, Simon. Some of them make it look so easy as inspired me to have a go. Learn a thing for me. Just because someone makes it look easy doesn't mean it's easy. Totally true, Simon. He said, I'm only just getting to grips with basics like mixing paints to get the right color. But even that is kind of therapeutic. Yeah, man. It sounds like it would be. Hey, Simon. That's such a great idea. People painting la landscapes. Good on you for learning something new and, and persisting, even if it's not easy. And even if you're not automatically great at it. Oh, guys, and here's Judy. Judy wrote me a really long email, which I totally appreciate, Judy. Thank you so much. I'm just going to skip around here. I'm not going to read all of it to you guys because it's, it's pretty private between me and Judy, you guys. All right, so don't worry about it. Me and Judy have our own stuff going on that I can't tell you about. It's very private. Um, hi, Judy. Judy, guys, Judy is in the Midlands of England. How about that? She's about to move to the north of England. Judy got funding to do a full-time PhD in Manchester, Manchester, Manchester. Sometimes I can't say words right, guys. A full-time PhD in Manchester. Congratulations, Judy. That sounds awesome. Here's a fun idea that Judy had for me, you guys, but I'm, I think I'm going to extend it to all of us. She said, you mentioned bathing, that was last week, and how you tend to feel that you don't deserve a bath. When I was listening to that, I wondered whether this might work. When you think you might like a bath, think to yourself, Judy will pay. Now, Deanne, I'm a big fan, but I will not be paying your water and heating bills. Come on, Judy. 
What I mean is pay spiritually or emotionally that if it's helpful, you can pass the moral debt over onto me. Or as I type this, I'm realizing it would be much better for you to believe you yourself are worth a bath any and every day if you want one. However, if in some transitional phase it is useful to blame the whole thing on me, I'm very open to that. So here we go, guys. We got this We got this uh, person, Judy. I was going to say chick, but I don't know how you feel about that label, Judy. We got this person, Judy, in England, in the Midlands, about to move to the north. She's going to be in Manchester. Guys, picture this. Manchester. Judy. If you want to do something for yourself and you're feeling like you don't deserve it, uh, just to put it on Judy. <laughs> Sorry, Judy. And Judy signed her email, 100% shaft. Very nice. I think that's pretty much it, guys. Should we do the outros? Let's do the outros. Let me very quickly tell you about my upcoming shows. If you want to know about them, here we go. Are you ready for this? June 10th, Portland, Oregon. Shows at 7.30 and 9.30. That's at Curious Comedy. There will be a link for tickets soon. But meanwhile, just know that. Know that. June 10th. Monday, June 13th. Seattle. At Rendezvous in the Jewel Box Theater. Again, we're going to have two shows at 7 and 9. Be there on June 13th. Then, scooting over to Vancouver. June 16th to 18th. I will be at the Comedy Mix in Vancouver. If you enter those combinations of things into Google, you can probably find some tickets online. Before that, I'm going to be in Ottawa, Canada in May. That's going to be from like May 19th to 22nd. So there you go, guys. There's some shows, and then I'm always in Toronto. I'll be uh, at the Comedy Bar on May 7th in a show called Canada's Finest Comedy Bar Toronto, May 7th. Again, I don't know. Find the calendar. I'm doing the best I can. I'm helping. I'm helping. I'm just not giving you all the info because I'm kind of disorganized about it. But there you go, guys. Let's do the regular outro. Thank you guys so much for listening. Do you like listener feedback? Should we do more listener feedback? Do you want to tell me more about when and how you're listening to the podcast and what your life is like? You can. Deanne at nomoradio.com. Let's thank everybody that makes this possible. Let's thank yourselves for listening. Let's thank Paula Flalo. He's a producer and a friend and a great guy. Mike Carozza made the intro and outro music. He was sick recently, you guys, so send, send him some good healing vibes. Find him on Twitter and, and, and send him some love, too, like you're going to send love to Patrick World, who made the theme songs. How awesome is he? Charlie Sneaker made the little uh, cartoon. What's it called? A drawing? Uh, animate? It's not an animation. It's just a still picture. I'm an animation. I'm being very animated right now as I'm trying to give you this outro. But Charlie Sneaker, thank you for that. What else do we usually do, you guys? Why don't we give another shout out to uh, Evie Smith for saying everything is Raymond and giving us that fun nugget to play with for the rest of our lives. Find her on Twitter at Raven Vaughn Chaos with a K. Why is that her name? Because she's a, she's a derby lady. I think that's pretty much it. You guys, if you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends. Keep listening. Come back next week. Give it a rating on iTunes. Subscribe. I don't know. Whatever other things are possible. Thank you, guys. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
Cause if the beat's ringing, 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 that's cause if the beat's ringing.